Well, I hope we do. I hope we remember the 21st night of September. Um, everyone is mad at me now. So, no. <laughs> welcome to the review. We're live from the Bill Austin Radio Studio on Blaze Radio and blazeradioonline.com. I'm Gideon Karaoke. I'm John Brown. I'm Madison Young. I'm Ethan Pellin. I'm Alejandro de la Cedra. And I'm Haley Smilo. And oh boy, do we have a lot of news to deliver to you this week. It's been a busy one. So, today I get to start with the breakdown. So today on the breakdown, we, I'm talking about ride-sharing apps and the one and the one fight they've had with the city of Phoenix. So I'm sure most of you know what ride-sharing is. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for the sake of clarity and all, um, I'm gonna just define it. So ride-sharing is when someone lets their personal vehicle be used like a taxi. You you probably know know these apps pretty well and use them often, like Uber and Lyft. And, yeah. So, however, these apps are not without opposition to their labor practices especially. In California, a bill was passed last year to curb the use of independent contractors, which all Uber drivers or any other rideshare app drivers are classified as. And this bill is quite complex and would probably eat up much of this show if I tried to explain it fully. I'll send out some reading out on the Twitter later if you're interested in learning a little more about um, Assembly Bill 5, which was the bill that the California state legislature passed and Governor Gavin Newsom signed last September concerning that. But back to the main story. That's just some context. So Uber's actually been fighting some governments, and they're not big fans of that independent contractor law, and they're not big fans of a Phoenix City ordinance that we're getting to. So... Uber, Lyft, and Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich v. Phoenix. This fight started when the Phoenix City Council, who does own and operate Sky Harbor Airport, wanted to increase the $2.26, sorry, $2.66 pickup fee for ride-sharing services up to $4 and gradually increase it to $5 in 2024 and peg it to the inflation rate or 3%, whichever of the two is greater. That is a lot of math, folks. (laughs) Also, they wanted to charge a $4 pickup fee, which they do not charge for currently. I should note that this fee that is being increased is only for curbside pickup and drop-offs at the terminals themselves. Of course, this was not welcomed by Uber or Lyft, who planned to end operations at Sky Harbor when the fee was set to take effect at the beginning of this month. Also, Attorney General Mark Brnovich is against the city ordinance, accusing it of violating Prop 126, a 2018 voter initiative to ban taxes, fees, or assessments on services. Prop 126, however, does not repeal any existing tax on services before 2018. All of this led to Brnovich suing the city of Phoenix and the state Supreme Court to suspend and nullify the law at the end of last month before it was set to go in effect, once again, at the beginning of the month. And that's pending in the courts right now as we speak. Um, Decision to be determined. The city of Phoenix did voluntarily suspend the ordinance pending the outcome of the case. And that's it for me. That's the weird old story on Phoenix fighting Uber, the state attorney general. And it's, it's a brewing fight. And I'm just wondering, thoughts from the panel on it? Yeah, I mean, personally, as a college student, I'm a little worried with the whole Sky Harbor deal because, I mean, I've tried taking a light rail with giant pounds upon pounds of luggage, but, you know, I'm a small girl. Like, going onto a light rail with a ton of strangers and taking up a ton of seats, it's kind of inconvenient. I'd rather sometimes pay an Uber fee, but now I might not even be able to take an Uber. Um, I... Haven't understood. I've, I've attempted to understand the rationale that the city council has offered. Um, initially, I thought that maybe it was some type of like green legislation, like mm-hmm. the, to incentivize people to take buses, or like um, as I mentioned, the light rail. But kind of again, as Madison just mentioned, the light rail and buses aren't. I don't think they're ready yet to take the amount of traffic that Sky Harbor currently takes, exactly. and are really viable alternative. Yeah, and, like, the amount of travel that I've done now as a college student going back home, like, 
all, my parents want me home for every single break, so I'm going right. to go home all the time and coming home and going back. And, you know, when I go home, my mom can drive me home. But right. when I come back here, I'm, I'm all alone. And, you know, sometimes taking an Uber is just the best alternative. What do you guys think? As your New York native, <laughs> I would agree that this public transportation system, specifically the light rail, cannot really handle the amount of people coming in and out of airports oh, daily. So while I understand the push for them, and I understand why the airports are either fully banning transportation like Ubers and Lyfts, it might not be a decision that necessarily benefits them, but again, it's an airport. People are going to have to go one way or another, so they kind of have like a monopoly type thing here where they can mm -hmm. do whatever they want. Yeah, I 100% agree with Haley. It's almost, yeah, it's a virtual monopoly in some senses especially because the old van services that used to do them, if you remember those, um, a lot of them are shutting down. And who can afford a taxi? Who among <laughs> us can't afford a taxi? Uh, I'd yeah. like to meet you. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, yeah. So I think, so I, I what is it? So a little additional context I that did not make it to the script, but I can mention here now, is the big reason why the city of Phoenix wanted to do this is their accusation is basically Uber's not paying their fair share. Mm. That Uber and Lyft need to pay for the maintenance because they, there is a lot of Ubers and Lyfts. Sky Harbor's one of the busiest airports yep. in the nation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have a whole designated area all for them, which gets yeah. really, really congested and confusing. Yeah. Anyways. So, any other thoughts, um, ideas, grievances? Does Sky Harbor have any sort of like bus system that they use? They have a Sky Train, uh -huh. which only takes you from the neighboring terminals and um, the obviously the light rail system. Gotcha. And, and then, then they a parking lot. They also have a bus that takes you to the rental car station, mm. but that's really it. I mean, that's I f it. I don't know if the city bus goes to the airport. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm not too sure if the bus goes to the airport specifically anymore. I do know that. Once again, the light rail goes to 44th Street, right, and yeah. you take the SkyTrain right. yep. from there. Yep. And they are planning to expand it to the rental car center, so no more rental car shuttle. Maybe our school should do a deal with the airport. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. Like, maybe our school should have, like, a shuttle that goes to the airport. Mm, that Ideas. Would that would actually be really cool. Really, yeah. really awesome. I'd appreciate that for sure. Michael Crow, if you're listening, please give us <laughs> shuttles it. to Sky Harbor Airport. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's all I had to say on my story. I'm glad to hear from all of you on this. And I guess I should throw it over to Madison. Okay, hi, I'm Madison. Uh, today I'm going to be reporting a little bit on our global climate updates. So it was recently debunked that the removal of trees directly causing 484 billion tons of carbon emissions since the year 1990, which was stated in previous studies. In a late study conducted by Ohio State University and Yale, it was discovered that this 484 billion tons of carbon is actually only an estimated 92 billion tons that has been released in the atmosphere since 1900. Sorry, a little bit repetitive. My apologies. 92 billion tons is still an overwhelming amount of air pollution caused both indirectly and directly by, my, by mankind, but it remains to be 80% less than the previous knowledge deemed true. Now, taking a look back on the carbon cycle that I'm sure all of you and your parents learned and relearned throughout elementary school and beyond, trees and plants play a vital role in the carbon cycle. In the simplest terms, trees take in carbon dioxide from the air and release oxygen, breathable oxygen, into the atmosphere. With the heavy removal of trees and deforestation continuing to be a large issue, there are less and less trees absorbing CO2 from the atmosphere. The reason excess carbon emissions pose such a threat is due to the fact that they are a leading cause of climate change in which they raise temperatures globally by trapping solar energy in the Earth's atmosphere. To wrap up this new finding on a positive note, Without trees, the ocean it also acts as a proponent against excess CO2 emissions by absorbing the gas into its ecosystem, which then again leads to its own individual is issues that I'll get into in another episode. However, all in all, this large decrease in the amount of CO2 caused by deforestation is pretty positive news. Now, I know it might seem a little boring of a topic, but I think that's a pretty big deal. What do you guys think? Um... 
I, th I think it's a big deal, and just in terms of it gives us more leeway, gives us some more wiggle room, in a sense, not to not do, not to not to stop fighting against climate change because oh, we have more room. Mm -hmm. Just that you know maybe there's a little bit more leeway now, and you know still we should should still yeah. take the initiative. I think it provides a little bit of hope, and like you know you don't feel completely demoralized by this idea of like impending doom. Of, a, of the world ending. That maybe, you know, like 400 plus billion tons of carbon aren't in the atmosphere and only about 90-ish, which is a lot better. And I don't know. I just I just think that was great. I was, I was very surprised. And that also shows that, you know, scientific studies, you can't always trust them, even if what you think is exactly true, maybe it's not. Yeah, that's really right. And we're still getting better at this. The fact is, like, Climate science is not a field that's been around for mm -hmm. really long. Yeah, it's it's, true. it's a couple decades old, and mm -hmm. the science is, and science as, as a whole is still developing. We're exactly. learning new things every day, honestly. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool to finally get some good news on what is <laughs> a really, really nasty crisis. Exactly. Like, it feels like every new piece of information coming out about the Earth is just sad so it was just good to find out that someone was wrong for a change and that maybe you know there are brighter days to come i i think that when it comes to the timeline of climate um, science and climate change it's always important for us um, to look out for developing changes because there's, there might always be some new research or new foundings um, and i like that this story gives us some hope and hopefully we can uh, keep tracking these developing stories in science. Yeah, exactly. It's cool. I don't know. Sometimes I get a little overwhelmed because there's so many aspects that go into what is, you know, har uh, harming the, the world. Because you could go from, you know, CO2 emissions to, like, you look at all of the different environments and everything is suffering. But it's okay because we're all going to figure it out together. And hopefully I can help break it down on this show, which is super fun. Yeah, Madison, I'm so glad you joined us to thank talk you, sustainability. You. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, welcome, Madison. Where else would I be on a Friday night? Here. <laughs> yeah. That is right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, anyone else want to talk about anything climate? I think we got it. I think we're silent. Yeah, so we're yeah, going to head out it. to a break. Uh, stay with us. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening and coming back to us. Uh, my name is Ethan. I'll be giving um, some analysis of two um, situations. First, uh, this, uh, some new developments in the Syrian civil war, and then second, the Venezuelan political crisis. So starting with um, an analysis of the present situation in Syria. Currently, the war is likely at its final impasse. The Syrian government, supported by Russian air cover and logistics, is approaching the last rebel stronghold of Idlib. With the remnants of the Free Syrian Army and Turkish-supported militia groups, supported by the Turkish government, facing off. Turkey has responded to the Syrian advance by bolstering its support of proxies and its own military presence in Idlib. It is uncertain how much more the Turkish government can do, however, to shore up Idlib, as the Russian government and Ankara have grown closer and closer over the past five years, culminating in the decision by Turkey to purchase S-400 missile defense systems from Russians to the United States. And so the Russian government's trying to balance their two allies in, with the Syrian government and the Turkish government having differing um, war aims in the Syrian civil war. So while the Syrian crisis is far from over, as it will take decades for the Syri Syria to fully recover, the Syrian government has been successful in its objective of recapturing the vast swaths of territory they lost at the opening of the conflict. It has done so through brutal means, employing chemical weapons, intense urban conflict, and relentless and indiscriminate bombing campaigns. It has been assisted in these efforts by Iranian-backed militias, most notably Hezbollah. Recently as well, on our involvement, is that the Syrian Kurds have also aligned themselves with the Syrian government after being abandoned by the U.S. government in October of last year and coming under attack by a Turkish offensive. It remains to be seen the level of autonomy the Syrian government is willing to offer their new allies in the aftermath of the conflict. 
Even as the Syrian government and its allies have been relatively successful in their military campaign, the economy and civil institutions of government-held areas remain in shambles. There's still 6.2 million internally displaced Syrians who remain stranded in Syria separated from their homes and their, and their culture. Infrastructure is nearly non-existent, and the Syrian currency, Syrian pound, has experienced a devaluation of nearly 20-fold. There remains millions of external, externally displaced Syrian refugees, including 3.3 million in Turkey. As well, the Syrian government remains an authoritarian security state, which has and will likely continue to imprison and disappear tens of thousands of political opponents as it did in the lead up to the conflict. Now, moving on to uh, Venezuela, there were two larger developments this week. A report detailing the level of Russian involvement in the Washington Post about how much involvement the Russian government has in the Venezuelan oil economy and the appearance of Juan Guaido at the State of the Union. First, some context is in order, however. Since 1999, Venezuela has been controlled by the United Socialist Party when Hugo Chavez won the presidency on a revolutionary platform in the collapse of the old guard political establishment. Chavez reoriented Venezuela's foreign policy against the United States, befriending and growing closer with Cuba, Belarus, Russia, Iran, and China. Later, he formed a key part of the Pink Tide, befriending the center-left and leftist governments that came to power in South America during the 2000s. He it was notable for his opposition to the Iraq War and the Libyan intervention. Under Chavez, the country, which was one of the most unequal in South America, saw key improvements in the living standards of the poor and working-class Venezuelans. Chavez financed a significant social spending by the Venezuelan state by nationalizing large amounts of the nation's oil reserves and infrastructure, which for decades have been run and owned by few oligarchs and U.S. oil corporations. Venezuelan democracy over its tenure actually became more participatory for the poor, as before they had really not been participating in elections, but he rechanged the kind of the social fabric to be more illiberal. More Venezuelans, as I was saying, participated on like things like participatory committees and populist political priorities, made him extremely popular among the poor, but made him less popular among the middle class and the wealthy. So Chavez drifted into illiberalism because he rolled back press and speech freedoms, and he consolidated both the legislature and Supreme Court under his party's control. So while Venezuela under Chavez was a, still a democracy, they were rapidly declining. When he, the real decline, however, began after he, his passing and the ascension of Nicolas Maduro to the presidency and head of the United Socialist Party. So the Venezuelan economy was very dependent on the price per barrel of oil because a huge percentage of their economy was based on oil exporting and production. And it had been $120 in 2013, and, but in 2015 it had declined to $45 and $25 in 2016. And much of the aggressive social spending that had made Chavez so popular and had really helped to lift the poor of Venezuela out of the shambles that they had been in was dependent on those oil sales. And so thus began an economic crisis as they continued to keep the sending the same, but they had to finance it with large amounts of, with large amounts of foreign debt and in high skyrocketing inflation due to currency devaluation. Maduro also accelerated the illiberalization started by Chavez. He began to outright jail political opponents and further consolidate his power among the military and courts. In 2015, on the backs of an economic and political crisis, an opposition government won the legislature. However, in 2017, he attempted to dissolve the legislature and hold new elections to break the opposition, but they reversed course after domestic international pressure. So currently, the crisis remains and is festered, with millions of Venezuelans having fled to surrounding countries and dissent increasingly risky. The current phrase of the crisis actually stems from a disputed 2018 presidential election where Juan Guaido Oh, sorry, where Maduro won under duplicitous circumstances. In response, Juan Guaido, the head of the opposition legislature, declared himself the interim president, having not, even though he had not run in the 2018 election. The United States, Canada, much of Europe, and U.S. allies in Latin America recognized Guaido, while Turkey, Russia, and China recognized Maduro and condemned Western attempts to interfere in Venezuela domestic affairs. Guaido has been unsuccessful in his attempts to end Maduro's reign due to several factors that I'll, I'll analyze for you. First, the opposition parties remain an uneasy alliance of a wide array of ideologies and political orientations from pro-business parties, social conservatives, centrist liberals, and anti-Maduro socialists. This has made it very difficult for them to really use the power they have in the legislature to counter him. And actually, in January, Maduro took some of the socialists and re-brought them into his coalition and took back control of the legislature. Additionally, the, he, Maduro still has support from the military and the poor because he continue, because of the relationship between the military is able to make money in the economy by managing certain state institutions, and the poor continue to receive subsidies and um, social spending continues to help them. Um, third, they have also received increasing amounts of military and economic aid from China and especially Russia. In the wake of U.S. sanctions and embargoes, Russia has actually become the largest 
buyer of Venezuelan crude oil, with Russian oil companies making $120 million a week reselling the crude oil. And that was what was revealed by the Washington Post. So because of the United States sanctions, it's actually pushed Venezuela further, further to being closer with Russia. Guaido's largely symbolic appearance at the recent State of the Union speech also further marred the, the position of the opposition as it reinforces the notion that while the United States remains only an outside actor with diminishing influence, the Russians have a serious foothold. I'd uh, like to open up to uh, if anyone has any questions or comments. Um, before this, I, I actually, I don't know where I heard it, but someone was talking about how, like, the U.S., you know, recognized this person as the president of Venezuela. And I was like, what, is that, what does that even mean? Like, isn't someone just a president? Isn't someone not a president? But now it's a little more clearer. So thank you for okay. that. Okay. Yeah, well, essentially what had happened was Maduro and his party won the mm -hmm. election, but they, it was duplicitous because the, the sure, it, it was an election. People mm -hmm. were able to vote, but right. no one really knew because he, his party was controlling the voting machines, and then a lot of the opposition who was going to run either were jailed or intimidated into not running. So it was kind of a pretty much a rigged election. So yeah. people have different sides on it. I see, I see. Makes more sense. Very interesting. Kind of brings me back to the 2016 election and all of the questionable things that happened then. So very interesting. Anyone else? What I for sure learned from your segment, Ethan, is that oil is everything. Yes. Mm. And uh, whether that was today, last week, or the week before, it seems that oil tends to be the constant theme, which makes sense in world affairs. It also seems that uh, voting matters no matter where in the world you are. Mm -hmm. So, again, here's our promotion to please go vote no yeah, matter where you are. Please. Yes, the review <laughs> asks all seconds. of you to vote. And uh, one thing, more thing I would like to know, which I didn't get around to, is, is that the U.S. kind of has to be really judicious with, with the level of public support that they extend to groups, because based on what I've read and what my understanding of the, kind of the Venezuelan political dynamic is that while the population does not like the current government because they're, being, they're increasingly authoritarian, they've mismanaged the economy, right. things are really not going well for them. They still remember from the 90s and the 80s how bad it was when U.S.-backed governments were in power. So they're still really unpopular and just the fact that Guaido is being like, recognized and he's at the State of the Union, it makes it really hard for Venezuelans to trust him. Mm -hmm. But they also don't want to trust Maduro either. So it's kind of like at this impasse where there's really, there's not an exactly really viable political opposition, but the current government's also really mismanaging the situation gotcha. as well. Venezuela is basically between a rock and a really, really hard place. It's, yeah. it's to me, it's, I'm trying to piece it all together in my head because it doesn't all connect. Not that, you, you did a really good job explaining it, but. Yeah, world um, affairs are complicated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it seems least. to me that basically, like you were saying, these, they're mm -hmm. kind of like at this like impasse, like they're, they're back, like Venezuelans, backs are to the wall mm -hmm. because you know they kind of, they want a better life and uh they want a better country um but then they see uh correct me if I'm wrong like governments like the one the US here they see that man at the state of the union they see that as kind of an endorsement of sorts you know or kind of you know they gave this man that platform and you know um maybe it kind of like took away some hope because they were like oh like this man is uh, like doing bad in our country. Like, look at—he's at the State of the Union. Like, mm -hmm. being like on—he's on TV and like, yeah. he's being given a platform by them. So I feel like they might have had a little bit of hope taken away there, and um, hopefully, you know, the shadow that's been cast can, you know, bring light to a new day. I and wish um, one other thing, kind of along what you were saying, is that also a lot. Some of the rhetoric from this, the current the Trump administration. Mm -hmm does not really seek to really make the Venezuelan public trust them when they talk about, like, like Pence said uh, at a speech, talked about, like, wanting to have private companies gain access back to the oil. When you talk about gain, pri private U.S. corporations gaining access back to the oil, a lot of the Venezuelans will go, well, you know, at least I'm getting some level of social spending from the government. At least it seems like they're still spending some money in our economy and we have control over the oil. If the U.S. just wants to come in and have their corporation say, well, I'll be no better off. Yeah, understandable. Um, I was going to add on something to Ethan's point. Ma Madison um, said something really good. I was just like genuinely confused as Madison was, as like the old president situation. So the, 
thanks for clarifying that. I think Ethan's segment was really in, uh, was really helpful because I didn't personally get it either. And world affairs is very different, or mm-hmm. not different, but difficult. And, and it is different as well. So thanks, Ethan. Yeah, Ethan, you did wonderful. And yeah, just to write off of like what everyone's saying, it this is a very messy issue. It is dicey, and who knows how it will be resolved. Yeah. Now, both both Syria and Venezuela. I mean, there's there's both of these situations have millions of refugees. Serious questions about their their uh, civ- civic and economic infrastructure institutions, and I mean, you, they're, they're both at impasses too. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to wrap up and uh, hand it off to John to talk about some more news. Thanks, Ethan. And yes, now we're moving on to more news. Now, Oprah Winfrey started choking up during an appearance on the Today Show with Hoda Kotb and Jenna Bush Hager while talking about the backlash against her BFF, Gail King, over a recent interview. In quotes, Winfrey said she is not doing well as she teared up. She is not doing well because she now has death threats as and has to, I'm sorry, and has to now travel with security, and she is feeling very much attacked. Now, this is coming from the interview that on CBS this morning that Gail King did with Kobe, um, the victim who accused Kobe Bryant of rape. Um, I think this interview aired maybe a week after he died, I believe. Yeah. And um, King has been majorly criticized for asking former basketball player Lisa Leslie about rape allegations made against the late NBA star Kobe Bryant. Um, on Thursday, King expressed anger at her CBS This Morning bosses for releasing what she felt was a salacious and out-of-context clip of her interview with Leslie. So this story mainly got attraction on Twitter um, because it was only like a minute and 30 seconds of her interviewing Leslie. Mm-hmm. Um, so it says on here that she has not slept in at least two days and she feels that she's a horrible person and everything. And she did put her reaction on her Instagram. I haven't got a chance to watch it yet, but this story is so shocking because Gail King is like a really iconic journalist. So I want to know what the panel thinks about this one. So I don't think that Gail King was necessarily wrong for asking Lisa Leslie this question uh, because like whether uh, like when we look at Kobe's legacy and we look at his career this uh, rape allegation was a part of it Mm -hmm. and we can't really ignore it so I don't think that Gail King should be faulted because she did want to tackle you know not just the good side of Kobe in this interview with Lisa Leslie but also you know some bad stuff that has been brought up now, yeah. just for context, for anybody who doesn't know, Lisa Leslie is a legend in basketball. I mean, she's a, basically the early, an early pioneer in the WNBA, and she was one of the first uh, in the WNBA to basically rise to this like star-level status and, you know, is considered one of the greats in the WNBA. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Leslie, uh, let's have her apply here. She says, uh, I just have never seen him being that kind of person that would do something to violate a woman or be aggressive in that way. Uh, Miss Leslie added, uh, that's just not the person that I that I know. So that's what Lisa Leslie said about, uh, you know, Kobe in relations to these rape allegations. And I don't fault Leslie either for wanting to, you know, keep uh, this inner, uh, not talk about that side of Bryant because, you know, she's a former Los Angeles spark. She's clearly close to the Lake organization, and I'm sure she knew who Kobe was. And I don't think she's lying at all when she's talking about the person that they she knew because she's talking about the Kobe that she knew. She clearly didn't know any side of him that might have uh, been darker or not as good. Mm-hmm. So I think what we should, or uh, I think that maybe audiences and people looking at these interviews and articles should be a little more diligent mm-hmm. um, looking at the context because ultimately I think Gail King was just doing her job and Lisa Leslie was answering honestly now and I mean anybody uh, in the anybody can go into their responses and criticize them or have dialogue about it, but ultimately it was an interview and she asked the question she answered 
So I don't, I really think it's, shouldn't be made more big of a deal than it is. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's fascinating because in our news writing and reporting class, you know, obviously we talked about the coverage of Kobe Bryant's death because it was a huge deal, breaking news. And the thing is, is that usually obituaries and everything dealt with a famous celebrity's death is written years before they're expected to pass away. Like, people do statistical, analytical stuff to figure out how and when and why these people are supposed to die. And, you know, it was just such a shocking moment. And I think that the what happened afterwards, like, I think people just need to take into consideration, like, how the world is going to respond to what they decide to do with it. I don't think she was wrong in asking these questions because, you know, Kobe Bryant, obviously, like anyone else, is a very complicated person. And you can't just ignore something like that that happened in the past. Whether it actually happened or not, it was an accusation that occurred. And it was a big moment in history back in 2003 when it happened, even though we were very young. Right, yeah. So, I mean, as a journalist, like... I feel like she was, it's an ethical, you know, dilemma, but it's like, do you want to disclose the full truth and try to get there, or do you want to put respect on this person and their life? But then, if you give someone that their respect, are you respecting the person that might have gone through something? And it just, it's, yeah, it's a really questionable thing, but it all breaks down to ethics. And it was the journalist's decision to do that. And I think whatever she's faced with now is what she has to deal with. Yeah. And I just want to add, I know John's been wanting to give a response, but I got a really quick thing to add to all this. The death threats on Gail King, it's awful. Like, I do not think anyone, anyone, whether I like them, hate them, whatever I think of anybody deserves to live through that no death threats Definitely death not. threats are extreme i did not mean she deserves right. to no, no. deal with death threats i'm one i 100 percent no believe one you. should ever ever because that's just extreme, extreme. oh yeah it's it's wrong yeah I, I was gonna say that yeah and it's, it's yeah. not it's not okay i'm sorry i keep on interrupting you go yeah and it's absolutely wrong and yeah everyone's right like Kobe Bryant is a hu- was a human being. He was a complicated person. We are all very complicated people. No one, there's very few people in life that get anywhere close to superhero or supervillain. Mm-hmm. Like, that is not a thing that exists outside of fiction. Mm-hmm. People are messy, complicated, and... Confusing. I, yeah, and confusing. 100%. Exactly. One quick note... Um, because I heard you mention it made me think of something, um, is you mentioned superheroes and supervillains. Mm-hmm. I think often, t- sometimes we want to have superheroes, and so, or we want to have supervillains, and so when, it, when someone's death happens, sometimes we, like, we want to deify someone, and so then we get angry when someone tries to sh- like show a different side of them, especially for someone like Cody Bryant, because he was such a inspirational figure. Um, and I agree with pretty much all of what the panel said in terms of um, that no one really in this situation deserves what's happened to them. King for asking the question, um, just well, just because you disagree with someone what they said or they did doesn't mean you send them death threats. Yeah, no. And you, you can make a post. You can say, I disagreed with that or I didn't think that was right. But to like, harass them and to send them death threats is going too far. To jump in as a sports journalist on the panel, um, Kobe's life was extremely complicated from his birth to his death. None of it really made sense besides his consistency in basketball and his ability to promote the game. I don't think she was in the wrong. I don't think she was necessarily foolproof either. She should not be receiving death threats, though. That is very clear. The question was, was it too soon? We talked about this in JMC 306, for those Mm -hmm. of you who don't know, that's sports multimedia journalism. And I think we did give them a fair amount of grieving time. Of course, this is a death America as a society is going to continue to grieve for a very long time. But his wife, she talked about Gianna, she talked about Kobe dying. I think it was fair for this story and this interview to come out now because this is a part of who Kobe Bryant was as an athlete and as a human being, and we can't forget that. Couldn't say it better, Haley. And with that, that's the breakdown on the review. We'll be right back. 
Hello, everyone. I'm Alejandro de la Cedra. I'm your music and culture correspondent on The Review. Today, I'm not going to be talking about music. So I'm just going to go right ahead and say it. Journalism shouldn't be bought by a casino company or a music streaming service. Journalism shouldn't be bought by private equity firms. Journalism shouldn't be able to be bought by people who know nothing about journalism. So, uh, so four out of, uh, sorry, five out of the six of us are journalism majors. But I think we can all agree that journal good journalism is important. Yes. This week, Spotify bought The Ringer. The Ringer is a publication that is mainly dedicated to sports, which makes up the majority of the site. Other parts of The Ringer include film and, t film and TV, music, tech, and politics. So that's The Ringer in a nutshell. But who is running everything behind the scenes? Bill Simmons. Bill Simmons is a huge name in journalism, especially in sports journalism. He's considered a trailblazer by many, with him being early to podcasting, which he would later become the face of, as well as creating the cult website Grantland, which makes sports and pop culture. While Grantland was shut down, it did have a cult following from many. Aside from those accomplishments, he also co-created ESPN's 30 for 30. Simmons' list of accomplishments and career moments are way too long to list here. So with him being the leader and Spot Ringer being bought up by Spotify, let's get into some of the numbers. Recode's Peter Kafka reports that Wall Street analysts are thinking the purchase was $200 million or higher. So, obviously a big purchase. There's no doubt that Simmons has built a podcasting empire, with his, being, with his podcast being one of the most popular in the world. Can't take that away from him. However, it feels like he's cashing in and not really caring to pick up the pieces left behind or acknowledge the great work a lot of his staff is doing. The Ringer Union, which was formed last August, learned about the potential acquisition and weren't given any clarity from upper management, although they had voiced concerns. In a formal statement about the acquisition, the Ringer Union said, On Wednesday morning, the Ringer Union and Writers Guild of America East learned that Spotify had purchased the Ringer. We anticipate a productive relationship with new management for all Ringer staff members, podcasters, writers, editors, illustrators, fact-checkers, copy editors, social media editors, and video and audio producers. We further look forward to working with new management to continue the bargaining process that began when our union was recognized in August. After weeks of public reports about a potential sale circulating without comment from our senior managers, we look forward to hearing from them about the, how the transaction will affect our day-to-day -day work. We expect the management to meet promptly with the bargaining committee to discuss these matters. So, while I realize that most employees aren't privy to business deals, I think they deserve to know about the acquisition ahead of time, not through Twitter. Excuse me. In other news, Ball Store Sports was bought by Penn National Gaming, a casino company. Now, while I'm not the hugest fan of ball, Barstool Sports, mm -hmm. I don't think they should have been bought by a casino. Like, it's a casino. They have nothing to do with journalism. Uh, to me, that's pretty clear, cut, simple. Mm -hmm. And then... You know, we had Deadspin, which died late last year after a memo sent to employees uh, that said stick to sports, um, which was sent from Geo Media, um, the higher-ups who own Deadspin. And basically, Geo Media was created by private um, equity firm Great Hill Partners, which um, bought Deadspin and a lot of other media properties um, that the company was associated with. Um, so this memo that says stick to sports resulted in editor-in-chief Barry Pachetsky being fired and basically, everyone else quitting in solidarity. <sighs> Creative direction and freedom to explore new ideas shouldn't be hindered in journalism. They should be heard and cultivated with care. And definitely not by a private equity firm, casino company, or music streaming service. I'm open to any and all thoughts from the panel. Pop off Alejandro. Yes. Good yeah. job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, basically, I mean... The thing is, is I, I think back to our history and principles of journalism class. <laughs> I was thinking class the same And exact how thing. funding journalism has just been a constant, you know, dilemma. But, you know, the people, their voice needs to be heard mm. and people want to listen to it. And the thing is that's funny. It's like, but who's who's behind that? Like, yeah. who's actually speaking and who's controlling that voice? And that's, that's why things get tricky. Like, are there laws that, you know, restrict Disney from, you know, like interfering with ABC's reporting, like no, probably not, and that's that's kind of mm. scary. So I don't know. That's my take on it. And the thing is that, so like with the Spotify buying the Ringer, Spotify recently has been getting into podcasting mm -hmm. in the last few years, and basically anyone can upload a podcast. I mean, our podcast is on Spotify, and I appreciate their efforts to 
um, work with certain publications to create original content. And that's all fine. Mm -hmm. However, this acquisition of The Ringer just feels kind of like a dirty to me mm -hmm. because The Ringer, I mean, while they are known for a lot of their podcasts, I'm very much worried that once these podcasts become, you know, on, go on Spotify and they become Spotify exclusives, which, are probably, which I'm assuming is what will happen, that a lot of the great work um, left behind by many of the people that work there, you know, illustrators, editors, writers, um, you know, all the fact checkers, copy editors, social media editors. I'm just worried that all these jobs that, you know, aren't involved in podcasting are just going to be left behind or just neglected. So that's a big thing that I'm worried about is that, you know, the people who aren't, you know, at the forefront of this podcasting that The Ringer is doing and Spotify has now acquired them, that they're not going to get the spotlight that they deserve. And, you know, like I said with Barstool, not the biggest fan. <laughs> Don't read them personally, but a casino company buying them just seems icky. And then just kind of just wrap it up. Deadspin was very, very unfortunate. They basically were gutted by this by Geo Media, which you know was created by this private equity firm, Great Hill Partners, and told to stick to sports, which I'm not even a sports journalism person. You know, I'm not a sports journalist, but that's just not something you tell your staff mm -hmm. because it's not just sports. You're so much more than that. Mm -hmm. So to tell someone to stick to sports is incredibly dumb, and I, you know, I give all kudos and like thanks to the people who quit in mass because that's a big. And I really enjoy that solidarity. So, is this company trying to like rebrand themselves as a sports-only like organization? The S Spotify acquiring the Ringer. No, the one you just talked about, where they were saying like sports-only. Well, basically, um, when they got that memo, everyone quit. So gotcha. Deadspin is basically dead. You can oh. go on Deadspin.com now, but their articles—the last article was maybe dated November 2019. Yeah. Wow. So it's dead at the moment. Well. Um, part of my concern, like main two concerns, I'll do this quick, is that w when these equity firms and these these basically these outside groups that don't really have an understanding of journalism and don't have a commitment to that, the first thing is is that a lot of the times when they acquire these publications, they cause them to lose their voice, like their their uniqueness, their tone. Like that's been had a tone, it had a uniqueness. And so they kind of just try to corporatize it and turn it into what what the company thinks a stereotypical sports mm -hmm. journalist or a music journalism should be. But they lose kind of the uniqueness and, and the creative freedom that a journalist has. And then the other thing that concerns me is that like their owners have interests. And so journalists, in my opinion, and I'm not a journalism major, but in my opinion, should have the freedom kind of to speak truth to power, in my opinion, or at least try to inform the public properly and shouldn't have the notion of this corporate overload over their head, tell, like basically, maybe not outright telling them, but feeling like they can't cover certain issues. Mm -hmm. and you, you nailed it, Ethan. You would have passed 110, because that's yes, what we learned 100%. there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just want to add, like this isn't just digital journalism mm -hmm. that's happening. This has been happening to the newspaper industry for a very, very, very yeah. long time. And one thing to note, if you want a preview sort of, of of like where I think it's the worst and the most concerning is if you look in the in the United Kingdom at kind of how their newspapers work is is that they're owned like three of three of the major ones in the UK are owned by Rupert Murdoch mm -hmm. and he obviously has he, he wants to support conservative governments mm -hmm. and so he he deploys his papers they don't have any sense of really in independence or trying to be unbiased. It's very clear, The Sun, The Daily Mail, they have obvious bias, biases and they really don't care what they publish as long as it leads to certain political outcomes. Yeah, um, and it's, it's just unfortunate that this is happening all, all through the world of journalism. It's, this is a field I love. This is why I declared a journalism major. Although I'm not planning on doing like traditional journalism per se myself, mm -hmm. I still love it. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm yeah. doing this show. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, not all hope is lost because, as my history and principles of journalism professor always says, history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. So, you know, I feel like we think journalism is super biased now, split-sided, all of these negative things, fake news, ugh, hate that term as much as it is bad. But, you know, 
I feel like journalism is always going to be this way. It's just going to look a little different. But yeah, great, great topic to cover. Good job, Alejandro. Thank you. Yeah. And I, now, uh, sorry. I know. I just uh, wanted to thank you too. Oh, like you did wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. And now to sports with Haley. So yeah, they might not be sp- sticking to sports, but I will. <laughs> so uh, today I'm going to talk about baseball because it's finally coming to baseball season, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to break down the all the divisions. But today we're going to start out in the NL West because we're here in Arizona, and eventually we'll get all the way to the AL East. So let's start with the Arizona Diamondbacks. Last season, the Arizona Diamondbacks ended the season 85 and 77. They were 21 games behind the Dodgers, and on first impression, that sounds really, really bad. But it wasn't. It was a winning season and a season that only saw the Diamondbacks four games short of a wild card spot. At the start of the offseason, general manager Mike Hazen was quoted saying that he would make sure the team had the players they needed to return to where they were in 2017. And that's exactly what he did this offseason. His mission started with the signing of a new ace. At the start of the offseason, the plan wasn't to find a replacement for Zach Greinke, but things shortly shifted and all of a sudden, Madison Bumgardner landed a spot on the Diamondbacks. Bumgardner will en- enter his 11th season of play and come to the team for a sum of $85 million. Yeah, crazy. Only that much? Yep, only. only. Right. <laughs> he will take over in the ace position and come into the new role of role model for younger pitchers on the Diamondbacks staff. To make things easier for the D-backs, they also signed his former catcher, Stephen Vogt, and his pitching coach, who worked for him with plenty of years in San Francisco, Matt Hurge. With the pitching and backstop mostly figured out, the Diamondbacks kept their infield core strong and quickly moved along to the outfield. They improved their corner spots by signing an Arizona native, Cole Calhoun, who, by the way, is an ASU alum, and then they were able to hold on to the key power bat, David Peralta. The team also traded for Starling Marte, who will help give the D-backs more flexibility in their lineup. With the vast improvements the team has made and a newfound security and flexibility in their lineup, the worst finish I see for them is a winning season. But for real, I think they're going to end up in the postseason with one of the wild card spots. As far as the offseason goes, it's one of the better ones in the MLB. So for me, they get an A. Moving on to the Colorado Rockies. The Rockies had a bit of a rocky offseason, but this season they will be looking to close the gap in the NL West. However, this offseason they didn't do too much to improve their team. In fact, they lost a lot of their players. One of the players they let go was MLB veteran Yonder Alonso. With the loss of a lot of older players, the team did have the money to bring in a younger core. They picked up a few minor league arms and extended a deal with reliever Scott Oberg. Oberg will be at Coors Field for the next three years unless he's traded away. They also signed Jose Mercado, which is a bit of a risky choice because he had to sit out last season due to Tommy John surgery. As much as it pains me to say, because I like the Rockies, I don't see them doing too well this season, which is a little strange because they have a good core of players in Nolan Arenado, Trevor Story, and Charlie Blackman. I think they're probably going to end up finishing in third place in the NL West with about the same record they have last season. If the Rockies want to turn things around, they're going to have to do something big before the season starts. With most of their offseason spent on rebuilding and bringing in players that won't really help them out, I give them a B-. minus. The Dodgers. Mm. After a season with 106 wins and a comfortable 21-game lead, the Dodgers didn't have to do anything this offseason unless they wanted to. Of course, the Dodgers' goal for this season will be winning a World Series. And to do that, they went with the strategy of doing nothing this offseason. All they did was add one player, Blake Trahan. Trahan was a bit of a risky signing as well because he had an offseason last year. The deal worked out for a one-year $10 million deal. And in addition to Trahan, they signed Jimmy Nelson. My thought for the Dodgers is they'll win the NL West once again, but I don't think they're going to win by 21 games again. I think the D-backs are going to give them a bit of a run for their money. And as a baseball fan, I'm going to root for a competitive division. As their offseason wasn't as exciting as the D-backs, but they didn't need as much as the D-backs, I give them a B+. The San Diego Padres. They had a bit of a shaky season last season after signing Manny Machado, and they still found themselves at the bottom of the NL West. This offseason, they continued to try rebuilding their team, and they were at the center of the longest trade deal this offseason, which sent Tommy Pham and Jake Cronesworth their way after nine days of deliberation. The team was also in a trade for Jackson Profar, Trent Grishman, and Zach Davis. But they weren't done there. In an attempt to improve their bullpen, they signed Drew Pomerez in a deal that mimics the deal they made four years ago. 
I don't think they're going to be any better this season, and once again, I think they're going to be at the bottom of the NL West. Maybe Tommy Pham can help them finish over the Giants. With a bit of a decent improvement, but not enough to be a playoff contending team, I'm going to give them a solid B. All the way back up north, the Giants have shaken up their team, but this time it wasn't on the field. It was all off the field when they signed Scott Harris, who's the team's new GM. It then continued as Gabe Kapler was hired as the new coach. Kapler added eight other coaches to his staff, one of whom is Ron Wattis. Harris quickly got to work with his new team as he signed the veteran Zach Cozart and the first-round draft pick of the 2019 season, Will Wilson. Harris was also able to sign Drew Smilly, Louis Morado, and Tyler Anderson in efforts to improve the bullpen. This season should be an interesting one for the Giants as the players on the field aren't new, necessarily, but the behind-the-scenes team is. With that being said, it's a lot harder to predict where they're going to be because Kapler was able to bring the Phillies from a losing team to a winning team. I still don't see them as winning the division or even sitting in second, but they could finish anywhere from third to fifth. And it wouldn't necessarily surprise me if they do. Considering it's a lot harder to grade them, I'm going to give them an A- minus if they win the season and get in third, a B if they have a winning season, and if they have a losing season and are in fourth or fifth, they get a C because they would have been better off with the staff last year. Quickly, do you guys have anything you want to add? So, I have a question. Yeah. So, obviously you said you see the Dodgers winning the division. Yep. And the Diamondbacks are improving. Mm -hmm. um, but other than money, what do you think the Diamondbacks pitches to Madison Bumgarner to say, hey, come to Phoenix, play with us? Well, Madison Bumgarner has always said that he loves being in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. He enjoys it here. He did well with the San Francisco Giants. But I think money was his main motivator, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, that seems to be the way baseball's going nowadays, unfortunately. So I think it was a mix of he liked it here, and they gave him the sun he wanted. Yep, sunny state of Arizona. All <laughs> I can say is I'm very excited. Um, yes, I'm surrounded sure. by plenty of people who are way too obsessed with baseball, yep. and I'm ready to learn, learn, and learn. <laughs> yep, I'm with Madison. Um, I spend way too much time around Haley to not know very much about baseball. Well, it's exciting. Baseball is a great sport. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, America's best pastime. pastime. Yep. Well, uh, that just about does it for us here. You guys want to go through your names one more time? Yeah. I'm Alejandro de la Cedra. I'm Ethan Helen. I'm Madison Young. I'm John Brown. And I'm Gideon Karaoke. Thank you all for listening. Have a good night. And don't forget to follow us on at the review on the Blaze. review Blaze, I think. I still yes. don't know our Twitter yes. handle. It's really, really great that I don't. We also have an Instagram with the same name, if I'm correct. correct. Yes, we do. So follow us, and uh, we'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye. Have a great night. <laughs>